should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show. Michelle Miao has got a well-deserved break today, so I'm sitting in for her. I'm John Zipperer, Michelle's co-host on Tuesdays and the Vice President of Media and Editorial at San Francisco's Commonwealth Club of California. Today we're going to talk politics. In particular, we're going to talk with several keen observers of the political scene about the latest developments in the national election, and we'll try to provide some insight into what's happening and what it means. My guests this hour will be several of my friends from our week-to-week political roundtable. First, we'll have Deborah J. Saunders, a columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle. Then we'll be joined by Dr. Larry Gersten of San Jose State University. And we'll finish up with CBS San Francisco's Melissa Griffin-Kane. If you're in the Bay Area, come on over and join us for a live week-to-week program in downtown San Francisco. You can find info on it and all of our other programs at commonwealthclub.org. So joining us first today is our friend Deborah J. Saunders, a columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle, and she blogs under the moniker of Token Conservative at sfgate.com. Welcome, Deborah, to the show. Hello, John. It's, it's, it would, I'd say it's nice to see you, but I don't. <laughs> it's nice to imagine you. That just sounds weird. So uh, it's nice to talk to you. Well, the, It's always great talking to you, John. <laughs> well, welcome. And, and there's so much happening right now on, on the national political scene. And I want to talk about what's happening in both parties. But let's start with an exit from the presidential race. Um, Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker withdrew this week. Did that surprise you? Well, it didn't surprise me by the time that it happened, but you were, you remember this summer, Scott Walker looked like he was really very possibly going to be one of the top tier yeah. candidates in this race. He was winning in Iowa polls. Um, a lot of my conservative friends, when you'd ask them, who do you like? Scott Walker, first name. And um, once the debate started, he just, all the air went out of his tires. He just couldn't, uh, he, he People just weren't finding that they were drawn to him at all. Then, he, then the money dried up. Yeah. And so um, by the time he left, I think people thought that he would be one of the early, early people to go. And he was. What interested me was, of course, the first person who dropped out, as far as I know, unless there was someone even so small, we don't know their name, was Rick uh, Perry from Texas. And of, the t- of, those, you know, of those two governors, and there are other current and former governors in the race, but of those two, he's the one who really has, if you will, the economic record to run on. I mean, his state was, is, has been going on kind of all cylinders for, for quite some time. Wisconsin's been kind of troubled for some time. And yet, well, Perry goes out <laughs> and, and you know, mm-hmm. largely uncommented on. I, I don't think that surprised anyone. But uh, for the reasons you mentioned, you know, Walker really flying high, um, and had some big money supporters, and then he goes out. And it kind of sounds like when it just came to the national stage, was it him as a candidate, do you think, or 
people were like, oh, they didn't like the message at that point when they really got to hear it directly from him? I just think Scott Walker didn't come across as authentic, and people are really looking for authentic voters. Yeah. Um, he, he, he sort of, you know, he, he would say odd things like, yeah, maybe we should put up a wall or border with Canada. Yes. <laughs> and he was, he overly parsed uh, his, his immigration stand, and he just didn't have that feeling of somebody who, uh, what you see is what you get. It sort of reminds me, and this is inside, so of Tim Pawlenty when he got out in 2008. Mm-hmm. Tim Pawlenty was a, a, a 20, 2012, and, and he was also a Midwestern governor. A lot of people thought he had the policy chops and were looking to him, but he could not stand the idea of being in debt. He got out early. Scott Walker, apparently, he had a campaign staff of about 85 people. Yeah. That's a lot of mouths to feed. Yeah, I think I, I so saw he, that he had like a full-time photographer on staff. That he just he just hired too too many people, yeah. and then he then he had to pay them, and he couldn't afford to do it, and he was looking at this mountain of debt, and he, he so he he dreamed too big, and he fell too fast, and we look at Rick Perry, who really could have been a contender mm-hmm. in 2012, except he. Got in the race without preparing the right way. He'd been, he'd had some back problems and some surgery, and he had that infamous oops moment, and he just never recovered from from it. So, I think he wanted to try again and see how he could do, and he quickly figured out it wasn't going to go anywhere, and he got out. Right. Well, you know, the person who really has been cited as having risen the most in this last GOP debate was Carly Fiorina, and I'm betting that does not surprise you at all. She is just sharp as a tack, and she's agile. She she knows how to communicate in a way that people understand in plain English. There isn't this sort of wonk talk. And some of the candidates, they, Scott Walker would be an example, where he'd say, here's my record, and they'd give you a list of sentences. And they'd use, you know, sort of filtered self-congratulatory language about policy. Yeah. She talks like a human being. You know, when asked about what's the problem with Washington, a fish doesn't know what's in water, you know, <laughs> things like that. Yeah. And, and so she, she, I think that it's not surprising that she, that she did well. And a guy like Scott Walker could never really tangle with Donald Trump. Carly Fiorina, she's a match for Donald Trump. She's the only one who has really come off for the better in, in a tangle with him, really? I mean, right? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I mean, and he's foolishly... Uh, handed her so much ammunition that remark about look at that face yeah. who wants her for president um and uh and she's just she's just handing it back to him he hit her record at hp she hits his casino record and she looks at his four corporate bankruptcies and and uh she's i think i think she's making donald trump lose sleep which is which is fair because he's making me lose sleep <laughs> well now that Carly Fiorina is really a top-tier candidate. Does that change her approach, do you think, or at least her risk? Because now she becomes a bigger target for both parties, right? That's right. And and you're, you're going to see a lot of uh, opposition her way. A lot of people are going to be looking at her record. Now, this was always going to happen. When mm-hmm. she ran for the Senate in 2010, there are a lot of people out there who worked for HP and did not like her. Um, angry about the layoff of 30,000 workers, angry about the outsourcing of jobs. Um, So this was always going to happen, and it's happening now. Well, she seems to be better at handling the criticism than Mitt Romney was in 2012. 
because he basically had a similar history, and uh, and, and and he never seemed to find a way to overcome that. Yeah, he he always kind of came across as if he wasn't. He didn't have the courage of the convictions, if you will, of what he had done. And she seems like someone who I can explain what I did. You might not like it. You might love it. But mm -hmm. this is what I did. And uh, so she she can be a bit more straightforward. One controversy that has kind of come out of this was her reference to this abortion video and whether or not it, it kind of sounds to me like what she says she saw was from a different video. A, does it matter? Or B, is this something that could kind of undercut the momentum she built? Well, you know, I watched the video, mm -hmm. um, and for, I could see how, uh, like a civilian, somebody who's not in politics, yeah. would watch that video and think that's exactly what happened. Because basically the, the anti-abortion rights people who put together this video interviewed a woman who worked for a stem cell company, and she talked about some really horrible things that she experienced uh, dealing with aborted fetuses. And th they put in uh, stock footage of a fetus, and... So I actually thought that what Carly Fiorina said really could, could be an honest uh, representation of what she saw. Yeah. Since the debate, however, PolitiFact and other fact-check organizations have explained no. Uh, you did not see a fetus kicking and screaming. You heard a woman talk, a, a woman kicking and screaming, feet kicking, heart beating. You heard a woman talking about saying that, and you saw the stock footage, and she didn't work for Planned Parenthood. Uh, and now she just doesn't even want to take it back. She says a lot of people haven't watched that video, and I think she's actually correct on that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, it, that, that what bothers me about that whole incident is that she's really pushing for this idea of Republicans passing a spending bill that defunds Planned Parenthood uh, it, with the belief that there's, there's, I don't know, there's this fantasy some Republicans have, which is then Obama vetoes it, the government shuts down, and the voters look and say, gee, Barack Obama cares more about Planned Parenthood than keeping the government running. I don't like him anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's just not going to happen. Barack Obama would love to see this go that far. Sure, shut down the government and make Republicans look bad. Democrats would be very happy to see that happen. Yeah. So, you know, she's one of the Republicans who are just trying to push the party into a box canyon. Interesting. Well, sticking with kind of that first debate, before the very first, uh, I should say, before the first GOP debate, the one on Fox, I had said that I thought it would be foolish if the other candidates spent their time uh, criticizing Donald Trump just because that's not going to make any of them stand out because they all almost pretty much agree on that, but also because, you know, Trump thrives on that. I thought... Mm -hmm. If they they should focus, you know, if what they need to do is is advance themselves, they should focus on taking down former Florida Governor Jeb Bush. You know, that would mm -hmm. open up a whole new ball game, more opportunity for many of them to rise up. Now they didn't take my advice, not that they would have, but Bush seems to be sinking all on his own, doesn't he? Yeah, they don't need to go after Jeb Bush. He's handling that fine all all by his <laughs> lonesome. Uh, and, but, and remember, another thing, John, is and you know, we all sort of have thoughts about how this is going to work. And what I love about politics is things don't happen the way we think they necessarily will. Carly Fiorina at that first debate, she went. She actually was, she was in the happy hour debate. Yeah. Uh, she didn't make the primetime debate the first time. And she went after Trump. Again, she does it with a light touch. And that's what catapulted her into the primetime debate in Simi Valley. Mm -hmm. Um. 
Well, kind of on that topic, so there were four candidates, four Republican candidates at the so-called kids' table debate this past week, or last week. Um, Is there Mm -hmm. one of them you would like to see graduate, that you would nominate to go to the adult debate? No. Really? (laughs) (laughs) You know, know, I'll tell you one thing that that really sort of surprises me, though, and that's George Pataki, uh, former New York governor, because at the first kiddie table debate, he was asked about the fact that he is that he supports abortion rights mm-hmm. and and about Planned Parenthood, and he basically you know sort of dodged the question. Now he's the only candidate who supports abortion rights in this big group. Is he afraid to tell people that? Does mm-hmm. he think it's going to hurt him? Um, I, you know, Lindsey Graham was good at the in the debate, but we just we look at we know who the serious people are in this race: Marco Rubio. John Kasich, Marco Rubio, senator from Florida, yeah. Ohio Governor John Kasich, Jeb Bush, who, you know, he could just have, this, you know, he, he, in fact, he was asked at the Simi Valley debate, what would you like your social, uh, Secret Service handle to be? And he said, Energizer. In other mm-hmm. words, he, he's trying to be the guy who just can, can last as long. He'll have the money. He's been through uh, grueling races before. He's supposed to have the stamina. Carly Fiorina. Maybe Chris Christie, something happens with him. Maybe Ted Cruz. I doubt it. Hope not. But so we, I mean, that's really where the action is going to be in this, in this debate. Ben Carson sort of showed himself, the retired neurosurgeon, is the anti-Trump Republican outsider because he's, he's calm. He's not going to embarrass people. Right. Uh, you know, well. by, by, by being sort of, by making faces. Oh, you know what I'm talking right, about. Right, right. It's a Simi Valley debate. When Donald Trump was making faces, the press room just went wild. <laughs> I mean, he just does things that your crazy uncle would do. <laughs> right? I right. mean, that's why he talks. So, so at any rate, um, but th- that's really where the action's going to be. Okay. It's, well, it's, I, I do want to get in uh, while we still have time here. Uh, Hillary Clinton. Uh, she can't seem to bury this whole email server mess. Again, as a, as a Republican observer of this, is the email controversy her biggest vulnerability at this point, or is it something else? I have thought before this election got going that she would have problems. I just remember 2008 when she was the front runner. Everybody, you know, she had, she thought she had it in the bag, and, and Democrats were they couldn't get away from her fast enough. When they when Barack Obama showed himself, I believe it's because she voted for the Iraq War, right. and they were looking for somebody who didn't. But there's there's always a certain kind of you know if, if you're a, if you're an insider in the Democratic Party, you know what there is to be nervous about with Hillary Clinton. So then you see this whole story with the server, and the problem, you know, everybody everybody in politics is a human being who has made mistakes, right? Mm-hmm. Right. But, but the Clinton. The Clintons, there are so many times when they're in hot water for the most avoidable reasons in the world. Yeah. They, they put themselves there when they didn't have to. And this email server thing is the classic example of that. And I think it has some of the insiders in the party nervous. <clears throat> and, and that's why there are people who are urging Joe Biden to get into the race. And and uh, just very briefly, do you think he will? I think it's getting a little late for him. Can I can I can I make one observation sure, about please. the Democrats? So 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 you know, Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, all three of the top three Democrats are old enough to collect Social Security mm-hmm. full amount. I mean, it it is an it is an old 
older establishment type of, 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 of field that they have there. And I think that that could be a problem when the general election comes around. Well, they... Especially if the Republicans pick somebody who's like Marco Rubio, 44, John Kasich in his early 30s, something like that. Well, we shall in see. In his early 50s, 50s. Right, right. Well, Deborah, thanks so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. John, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Great. And please stay with us, uh, the rest of you. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we will be talking to political scientist, excuse me, Dr. Larry Gersten. Stay with us on the Michelle Miao Show. We'll be back with more with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. And now, back to the Michelle Miao Show. Welcome back to the Michelle Miao Show. I'm John Zipperer of the Commonwealth Club of California, sitting in for Michelle. We're talking presidential politics today. Before the commercial break, we checked in with Deborah J. Saunders of the San Francisco Chronicle. Now Dr. Larry Gersten joins us to continue the discussion. Larry is a professor of political science at San Jose State University. He's also a political analyst for NBC Bay Area and the author most recently of Reviving Citizen Engagement. Welcome, Larry. Thank you. So uh, Deborah and I were just talking about uh, some of the kind of the fallout uh, and the developments in the presidential debate. When you and I last talked, excuse me, spoke, uh, uh, it was like 24 hours before the next Republican presidential debate, which is now in the past. Um, what were your thoughts about the debate? Were you surprised by anything? Not really. And that's because you need to look at these debates really as, as a, a, each one a chapter in a book. Uh, and at that, uh, these chapters are just the first few chapters of a much larger book. Mm -hmm. And we've seen a couple of things happen. We've seen the candidates take off the gloves, as we saw the second time around. We also saw uh, an effort, uh, I think a successful effort, to get the candidates, at least some of them, to address policy issues on a much deeper level. Uh, in that context, we, we learn more about what they had to say, or in the case of Donald Trump, what he didn't have to say. Yeah. Um, and that itself became very revealing about his candidacy, and it also became revealing about the others, uh, such as uh, Marco Rubio and, of course, Carly Fiorina, among others, who, who began to, to carve, uh, carve out the, their role and their, their positions vis-a-vis -vis the others. Now, did you also watch the so-called kids debate, the pre-debate debate, if you will, with uh, the four other candidates who didn't qualify for the main event? Unfortunately, I did not. I was in transit, so I did not see that debate, so I can't speak to that. Well, and I, and I won't ask you to comment on it then, though I would just note that it, I found it very interesting because you had in that debate two candidates who, you know, George Pataki, who is probably less than 1% in the polls, and uh, Lindsey Graham, who might, you know, have double that. Um both kind of being the, the substantive, you know, candidates there uh, talking things. And, of course, being with only four people on the stage, they were able to go much more deeply into each of those things. Um, but you found substance actually among the theatrics in the main event. Uh, what, who, I mean, okay, we had Deborah and I were just talking about the, the obvious uh, winner, if you will, or one of them, uh, Carly Fiorina. Do you think she... Uh, 
first of all, do you agree with the folks who say she really was the one who pulled off a, you know, a, a rise or increasing her visibility and, and stature? Well, well, it's hard not to think that she succeeded given her uh, uh, surge in the polls. Um, I, I'm not so sure that she was as successful long term as she appeared that night. She was extremely articulate. Uh, she uh, took a series of positions, um, uh, and and she was able to fend off uh, of any uh, attacks uh, against her character at least that time around. Um, I, I think Carly Fiorina's story is yet to unfold um, because she's now on the stage, uh, the big kid stage, if you will, um, and in her first go around. I think in some ways she received a pass don't know how to deal with this person, that kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. Remember, the others had the experience from the first time around. I'm not so sure you're going to see that next time. Um, she has uh, to, to account for her past, which um, many critics believe is not quite as rosy as she presented it uh, on the night of the second debate. So, so yes, she certainly um, improved her status. I think a couple of other people also looked pretty good. Uh, Chris Christie, uh, I was impressed by the way he he repeatedly turned the discussion to to um, a, uh, a, a, a an evening about what the American people need yeah. rather than to go back and forth with the candidate. He looked at the people. He was it was very effective, I thought. Um, and uh, Jeb Bush, I thought, in his own way, perhaps understated, uh, was not afraid to speak out a lot more. Uh, on this on substantive matters, uh, Marco Rubio was probably the other person who impressed me, because he too was not afraid to speak out on issues, um, immigration, foreign policy, yeah. uh, matters like that. Well, you you mentioned Jeb Bush. Jeb Bush, of course, has not gone up in the polls. He's been sinking. Um, and and I don't know if you read uh, David Frum on the Atlantic. David Frum is a former speechwriter for his brother George W. Bush. Um, and he, David Frum was saying that in the basically the contest of wills, <laughs> uh, you know, between uh, Jeb Bush and Donald Trump, Jeb Bush lost. You know, I, and I, I was kind of thinking that there was a point during this debate where Jeb Bush and Donald Trump were tangling verbally and clearly, you know, talking over each other and, and trying to establish dominance. And I was thinking at the time, OK, from a from Jeb Bush's point of view, this is good. You're standing up to him. But you cannot lose this interchange or you'll be confirming something. Anyway, he ended up kind of backing down and letting Trump finish the thing. A very Bush trait of, okay, you know, you go first, sir. Um, David Frum was saying when – so that – he David Frum basically – and I hope this isn't too long of a point to make. But David Frum was saying that uh, Donald Trump established dominance twice in that interchange. One by – uh, you know, winning the right to, to finally make his point. And then two, when he gave permission then for George, uh, for Jeb Bush to talk, A, are David Frum and I making too much of this? Do you think anyone watching this cared? Or B, is that part of why people were kind of peeling away from him in the polls then afterward? You know, they, they saw him not be the candidate who's going to stand up. The question is, is Donald Trump establishing dominance or is Donald Trump being a bully? I mean, there's a point where a person has to just let him go ahead and talk. Otherwise, it becomes a shouting match. And I think uh, Jeb Bush is a bit more dignified than that. Now, some people might think of that as, as withdrawing. Others might think of it as a man who says, you know, let the other guy make a fool of himself. But the latest Quinnipiac poll shows a four-point drop 
uh, for Donald Trump, mm-hmm. uh, and I find that rather significant. He may well have peaked. Um, you know, other people have predicted his demise earlier, uh, and perhaps it's even premature now. But when you go 37 minutes into Donald Trump without saying anything about foreign policy, it's because you have nothing to say. Yeah. And uh, and uh, I guess it was better for him to say nothing than to make a fool of himself saying something. Um, uh, you know, th- 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 this the star quality uh, wears after a while. It's intriguing at first uh, because the person's doing something out of context, and that's who Donald Trump is right now. He's acting out of context. But after a while, people begin to say to themselves, you know, I need to imagine this person as the next president of the United States. And that's why I think over time, as the, as the, as the field narrows, uh, Walker dropping out now uh, means one less. Right. There'll be others to drop out too. As the field narrows, there will be more substance. You mentioned the second debate, you mentioned the second debate where there were only four people. You know, for that reason alone, it was a debate that offered the opportunity for people to really get into the issues. Uh, when you've got 11 people on the stage, you know, people look for the gotcha moment. Right. You're going to see less gotcha moments and more substance as people drop out. It's only a matter of time before two or three other candidates drop out. Then you'd be looking at six or seven people on the stage, more time for each of these people to comment. It's a long time. It's very, very early. We hunger, you know, for who will be anointed the nominee when that when that moment is nine months away. The fact of the matter is, uh, it's there's a long way to go, and I think you're going to see a number of candidates uh, drop out in the next three or four months, which will make it easier for people to discern who really has the gravitas. Well, and and Scott Walker, when he dropped out, when he withdrew, he made a speech and he said he encouraged others to drop out as well from the GOP race in order to create a more unified, stronger, you know, conservative, excuse me, conservative challenger to Trump. Um, which I thought was actually, if you know, what regardless of whether you agree with him or not on his politics. He was at least using his exit speech to try to, you know, further uh, uh, something he thought was very important. Um, but I don't know that any other candidate is going to drop out because Scott Walker asked him to. I mean, it's going to come down to the same calculus that he made, which was, you know, oh, the donations aren't coming in and my donors are, you know, fleeing, right? No one will drop out because Scott Walker asked him to. They'll drop out for other reasons. For example, Rand Paul finds himself in this curious uh, predicament where he was, is able to run both for president and for re-election as senator right. uh, in, in Kentucky. Well, that's not wearing with a lot of people, number one, in Kentucky. You know, why do you vote for somebody if you feel he's not going to be there? Uh, and number two, he's raised next to nothing uh, for that election. Um, and so at some point, Rand Paul is going to have to make this very critical decision. Which way am I going? Given his stature, at least in the polls, it wouldn't surprise me at all to see Rand Paul drop out. Yeah. One by one, they're going to have to reassess. Uh, uh, Ted Cruz is going to have to reassess. Now, he's got a nice super PAC in terms of a lot of money, but he doesn't have any traction. Uh, uh, so I think you're going to see these people you know, come to terms with where they are in the polls, how much they have to do to, to get up to the top four or five, and not because Scott Walker asked them, but just because of logistics, fundraising, uh, other other situations such as uh, Rand Paul's come up, and and their their destinies change. Mm-hmm. Um, what you you your recent book, Reviving Citizen Engagement, it came to my mind this morning when I was thinking about a lot of this. Because I was actually thinking about like civics classes and how people actually learn why we do things, why politics isn't just a you know entertainment show, 
Um, does watching any of this, watching the huge number of, of folks who are drawn into these debates because of the, the theatrics or something, does that at least make you kind of think, well, they're being exposed to something? I mean, are you given any hope from this election or is there, are we just in, you know, as they say, clown show stage of it and it gets more serious later? I think it's wonderful that so many people, you know, find themselves drawn into this race. It's the job of the viewer to do more than just watch that two hours or three hours, or two or three or four times. It's the job of the viewer to look up these people, to see what they say in terms of what really is, to, to, to look at their past uh, um, experiences and, and positions and compare them with where they are. The problem is citizens have responsibilities. Citizens have obligations. And those obligations don't begin and end with watching a, a few hours of uh, of uh, debate, if you want to use that word, uh, that we've, we've seen. Uh, it's got entertainment value, but, it, but hopefully it does more than just entertain. Hopefully it stimulates people uh, to move on and, and, and do their own due diligence that has to go far beyond uh, a few hours of watching television. Mm -hmm. I wanted to kind of expand this a little bit and talk about something else, that, else that's very much in the news. It's sort of presidential related just because he's been talking to the president that is pope francis in washington um he's really the focus of attention right now pretty much uh, it seems like of everybody there of both parties um he's of course coming with a, a a message that is that strikes politics but he's coming at it from a non-political at least in in the way we think of it here uh, uh approach and i i found it interesting listening and watching some of the, the criticism of him. And, and it comes from both parties. You know, basically, whenever he criticizes something that they support, they're like, well, you shouldn't be getting involved in politics. Other times, it, you know, they're thrilled, of course, to have this, uh, this sage uh, uh, discuss the things that they think are, are really important to, uh, to get on the national stage. Um, any thoughts on Pope Francis's visit, is it kind of a, a going to add impetus to anything, or is it going to be kind of theater, and once he's gone, the money machine just keeps going on? Well, it's hard to believe that the Pope's visit is going to change very many minds in Washington. But, but what it does show is his interest in the state of the world, if you will, uh, particularly when his, his very passionate comments on climate change. I mean, right. there's no holding back there. I think people forget that the religious leaders like the Pope, most of them are political in one way or another. You can't take the politics out of religion any more than you can take it out of almost anything else we do in life. I mean, it, it's, it's part of who we are. Anytime you're making value decisions, in a sense, you're talking politics. And this Pope, I think, perhaps is a bit more outspoken than, than others, but certainly he's not the first to to make his statements. He's made his statements, of course, on the value of life, the sanctity of life, which, which doesn't appeal to liberals. Uh, he's, made, he's made his appointment as a statement on climate change, which doesn't appear to, which doesn't uh, endear uh, um, conservatives. But, you know, he's, he's making statements, and I think what's charming about this man is that he does it in a very uh, inoffensive way. Yeah. Um, he's not trying to step on people. He's getting pe trying to get people to think. And of course, let's remember 20% of this nation is Catholic, including uh, two-thirds of the Supreme Court and a large, num a large uh, uh, percentage of Congress. So I, I think it's, it's good for them to, to see this person and what he has to say, as well as it's good for the flock, the 20% of the nation that's Catholic. I think, I think in some ways it's renewing hope for a large number of people who feel disenfranchised from what's going on in the United States today. Yeah, well, very good. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Larry Gersten. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. 
Take care. Thank you. Thank you. And we've got to take a break. And when we come back, we'll have Melissa Griffin Kane in studio to continue talking politics. Stay with us on the Michelle Miao Show on the Progressive Voices Network. We'll be back with more with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. You're listening to the Progressive Voices Channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. And now, back to the Michelle Miao Show. Welcome back to the Michelle Miao Show. I'm John Zipper of the Commonwealth Club of California, sitting in for Michelle, and we're talking about the latest developments in presidential politics. Our next guest is Melissa Kane, a contributor to CBS San Francisco with her Mornings with Melissa segment. She's also an attorney, so watch out. Welcome to the show, Melissa. Welcome. Thank you. So uh, you must have watched the uh, GOP debate last week, did you? Of course. I'm a nerd. I love this stuff. Did you watch the Kitty debate as well? Always. That one can be even more fun. I thought that one was more substantive. Uh, interestingly, I wasn't sure that it was more substantive, oh, really? but it was definitely um, more interesting. I thought Lindsey Graham was hilarious. I was like, where have you been? <laughs> he, he seems like he's maybe given up, and so he's just going to do what he can to have fun with it. He really looked more relaxed and was just zinging them one after the other. It was I, was, I wished he had you know, unleashed that a little earlier on when he might have had a chance. He's my preferred candidate from that second tier to move up to the first tier if he gets you know last time carly fiorina was raptured up to the the next year, <laughs> he's my candidate to be raptured up just because he's he's got a sense of humor i don't agree with him on a lot of stuff but who cares and he also is sometimes the voice of reason on a number of things i find myself agreeing with him from time to time uh well, now that Walker's gone, there's a spot, so maybe he'll be the uh, the next one to, uh, to, as you say, rapture up to, uh, <laughs> to the to the grown-ups table there. Sure. Larry Gersten and I were just talking, and we were talking about Scott Walker calling on other candidates to drop out. Um, why do you think he did that? I mean, do- well, first of all, to sort of deflect the fact that he's dropping out, right? When you can't just say in your announcement, I'm leaving the race. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Uh, (laughs) Although if anyone was going to do that, it might be Scott Walker. But I think, you know, you have to add something, either spend more time with my wife and kids. I mean, there has to be some modicum of reason behind there. And I think that was something that a lot of people are thinking and uh, was not an unreasonable thing to throw in there. Do I think that's why he dropped out for the good of the party? Absolutely not. But but I I, I don't disagree that uh, that that more people need to drop out. There are just too many candidates with asterisks mm-hmm. next to their names in polls. Well, of course, Donald Trump began that debate by turning to uh, Rand Paul and saying, I don't even know why Rand Paul's on this stage. He should just do whatever. Is that crazy? I was <laughs> laughing so hard. I was like, what is this? He just turned for apropos of nothing, just like slapped Rand Paul. Then he like made fun of his appearance. Yes. Just it's like, what, did, did Rand Paul drive over his dog or what? Yeah, what is going on here? <laughs> and it just was sort of non sequitur. I was like, okay, the question had nothing to do with you. Um, but here you go. Uh, no, it was absolutely hilarious. And I was watching it in my office, and one of my coworkers just kept screaming at me, like, don't spoil it. I'm watching when I get home. And I'm like, you're going to love this. <laughs> well, what did you think of Carly Fiorina? In the second debate? Yes. Oh, I thought she was great. I thought she was substantive. I thought she handled Donald Trump really well. She's the only one, I think, who has really handled him directly and won it 
Uh, absolutely. I think so. I think you know, Ben Carson uh, has avoided him. Right. But in terms of people who actually have engaged him, she has been the best one so far. And not just because I think she's very good at it, but also because, you know, Donald Trump has a he's a little iffy when it comes to appropriately dealing with women. I think he's he's trying to be a little more careful with her. So the sort of the combination of these two things let her just really um, zing them in there in a way that other candidates just have not been able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I watched the kitty table debate the first round, that one that she was in, that yeah. sort of got her to the, to the big table at the second debate. And she basically repeated like everything from that. So it wasn't a lot of new material yeah. but for people who don't watch c-span like i do uh then it was it was new material i thought she delivered it uh really well although willie brown the other day called her a robot which a i robot. thought was interesting yeah he said she was robotic which to be fair again having seen her do those lines yeah. twice she does them exactly the same time the same way every time i mean she is very rehearsed very on point so do you think the more people see of her they'll start to see the repeats or do people not watch it as closely because they're not watching C-SPAN all the time like you? Uh, yes, I think she. You know, scrutiny is is the next chapter for her. So it's yeah. not just the repeats, which I think we'll see. Um, you know, her throwing out how she's friends with Baby Netanyahu, which she just like repeats all the time. Um, but it's also you know her business. Uh, experience right. and other issues. You know, her ex-husband came out the other day saying really nasty things about her. Just for the sake of fun, because um, I, I saw that too. Tell us what that was. Um, oh, he said she was the biggest, that the Republican race is a clown car and she's the biggest clown in the clown car. Is that right? Did yeah, that I'm, right? I'm assuming that was not an amicable divorce. You know, but here's the thing. They probably like, don't exchange gifts she and see each other. <laughs> she should have had Donald Trump's lawyers. Neither of his exes <laughs> will say boo, boo, bad about him. Even when like they get deposition testimony from divorce proceedings that say, uh, you know, he was abusive to yeah. me. And then you go and you talk to the ex-wife and she says, no, no, he's fine. He's home like a great president. And you're like, what is in that contract you signed right. <laughs> that is making you not say this? Um, but if you're Carly Fiorina, I mean, it's, if you have a, a, a nasty relationship with your ex, you had to know this was coming. Um, I'm, it's interesting to me that she didn't do more to try to mitigate that or anticipate it, uh, yeah. why this sort of came out of nowhere. Especially someone who seems to pride herself on organization and planning and being I mean robots are very well organized right, <laughs> right? <laughs> well uh, Chris Christie has been mentioned as someone who maybe performed better than he was expected to I didn't think it was a startling performance but he did I thought in a very obvious way keep trying to say look you know let's put away the games this is about the people um, oh yeah somebody some, yeah. one of his focus no. groups basically <laughs> told him that he's talking too much about himself. Yes, the, the well, the well-known man of the people, Chris Christie. Yes. <laughs> um, any other thoughts on that debate? Any any other? Well, I have to agree that Chris Christie did uh, bring himself back from the brink. Again, it was not the most stellar debate performance in right. the world, but he was really in danger. A, a bad performance would have sort of knocked him off okay. of of the stage, uh, of the 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 big kid stage. Um, so I think he did save himself at least um, for to fight another day, whether or not he will remain in this for very long i don't know but but i thought his his performance was kind of remarkable as well yeah we, we we've seen uh carly fiorina go from the the small debate to the big debate i really want to watch that small debate when the first candidate from the top tier gets kicked down there because he or she's going to be like <laughs> really angry <laughs> they're gonna have issues who do you think that that would be do you think it would be christie or john Kasich? Kasich. Uh, that's a really dis- disappointing one. He was, was so good in the first debate. Yeah. 
And the second debate just it wasn't bad, but wasn't really notable for anything. And in between the two, he's not been able to capitalize on that momentum at all. It has not translated into poll numbers or, as far as we know, money. He's arguably one of the most substantive candidates in the race or on the GOP side. That's just my my view. But, you know, he really has thought about stuff. He's got real positions on things. He does the trade-off you have to do in politics and and, uh, I think can even... I think he does a better job than some folks in selling conservatism as a as something other than let's just you know open up the doors to the Koch brothers and he does not seem as focus grouped you know you see some candidates and they're sitting there memorizing Mm -hmm. their position it's like if it's your position why do you have to have a flashcard and bullet points you know just say what you genuinely think and Kasich gives the impression that he didn't need um, a, a brief binder to tell him about the issues and what he thinks about them, that he's really speaking from his his heart and what he genuinely believes uh, we should do about certain issues. And that's something that set him apart. And so it's disappointing, A, that he didn't do it as good a job in the second debate, and also that none of this has turned into um, widespread support for him. Well, and that's kind of where I was going. It's like he's he's got substance, and between the debates, you forget he's even in the race. Well, I mean... Remember Iowa and New Hampshire, Republicans there are very conservative. They're very conservative. They're they are different from California Republicans, for example. So uh, it's not surprising that he can't get traction there. But it it can be debilitating in the long term if you can't even register Iowa and New Hampshire. What's going to happen to you, South Carolina, Florida? You know, by the time you know we get to March he's going to be in serious trouble and sort of unable to recover. So the system, I think, does not um, work so well for moderate Republicans who can't get the the traction they need there in in those early states. Well, and on the flip side, um, you know, Hillary Clinton's numbers in Iowa and New Hampshire, I guess, are either at or below Bernie Sanders, Mm -hmm. but a similar similar issue there. Both of those states, the primary voters tend to be to the left, and she has actually come out of the closet and called herself a moderate. Um, <laughs> wow, did she? Wow. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, unless that was an onion story, I don't know. I, it, it might but be, I, I, I don't know. If she, yeah. But, you know, I mean, similar dynamics. And uh, now, I'm not calling her John Kasich, I'm just saying. Right, I mean, those those two early states really determine a lot. Now, it's less important in the Democratic election just because, look, for a Republican, you got to win in Iowa and New Hampshire to get momentum, to get money. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't care what Bernie Sanders does in Iowa and New Hampshire, big institutional donors are not going to give to his campaign, even if he wins by 10 points. She will still be expected to um, sort of leapfrog him in South Carolina, Florida moving forward. So it's it's less important who wins in Iowa, New Hampshire on the Democratic side, mm-hmm. especially given the fact that Bernie Sanders is you know from Vermont near New Hampshire. So I think people bake that in. While it might you know be an interesting story and give him some momentum going forward, it it won't it doesn't directly translate for the Democrats at this time around as it does for Republicans. I think. Sure. Um, so. Now, Bernie Sanders, actually, when we were talking about someone kind of giving robotic, pre-read things, Bernie Sanders was someone who is not robotic. Please, folks, don't write in. (laughs) (laughs) But I was surprised when he first was really catching on big, and he was drawing these crowds of, you know, 80 million people or whatever in one little stadium or whatever. Yeah, they love him. just over and over, these huge crowds, enthusiasm through the roof. Yeah. Um, But then he would get onto the stage, and there would start 
the same speech. I'm like, oh, wait, I just heard him say this at the other thing. He, he didn't seem to be able to grab that crowd. I mean, again, they were already there for him. It's not like he had to. Right. But again, once he's got the bigger audience, he seemed to be just giving the same speech and the same topics. And, and that's not that not necessarily a bad thing. You're also, in those times, introducing yourselves then right. to a wider audience. But And people love his message. So if you've got a winner... You know, okay. maybe it's okay to stay with it. But I agree. When he was on Colbert the other day, um, he was giving his economic inequality um, argument, and the audience was loving it. And Colbert asked him, so what is what is your solution here? Is it 80% tax rate? Tell us what it looks like. And he just said, basically, what it looks like is more equality. And he didn't really answer the question. And I thought, well, at some point, you're going to need to start giving some concrete policy recommendations, um, aside from just this situation is untenable. I think a lot of people agree with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we got to move a step further. And as the scrutiny continues with him, as he does well, if he yeah. does really well in Iowa, New Hampshire, it's going to be even tougher because he's going to have to lay out a, a real plan. And it can't just be universal health care, which is great, but uh, and a lot of people want, but it's got to be something politically uh, possible. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so he's going to need to move beyond just sort of big ideas and talk about what he can do as a president. What about Joe Biden? Oh, Joe. I still, you know, I, I can't believe I'm going to say this again. I'm doubling down on this. But I've said <laughs> from the beginning that Joe is not going to run. Yeah. Um, and it's not because he's not, uh, you know, would not be a good candidate or anything personal about that. It's just that Hillary has so locked up. I mean, if you look at California, I, I liken it to like the California state uh the California race for the U.S. Senate, right? Kamala Harris has locked up every endorsement, yeah. every promise of money, all, you know, she's done. To some degree within the de- Democratic establishment, which is where Joe Biden would be looking, right. um, she's really locked up the commitments and the endorsements. And so I'm not sure what's left for Joe to get, especially since these are two people who are going to be um, cannibalizing the same group. Right. Uh, and so I think it might just be a little too late for him to to enter and and be able to raise enough money to have a meaningful campaign. Okay. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and uh, you can stick around for just a few sure. more minutes. Great. We're going to come right back. Melissa Kane and I will continue our political talk. Stay with us on the Michelle Meow Show. We'll be back with more with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back to the Michelle Meow Show. I'm John Zipperer of the Commonwealth Club of California, sitting in for Michelle. And Melissa Kane and I are talking about the latest developments in the presidential race and other politics. Um, let's actually, before we, I want to talk about the Pope who's in Washington right now and, and uh, slapping everyone's wrists. <laughs> First, I want to talk about Planned Parenthood. Yes. Um, is there going to be a shutdown? And what Republican actually thinks that will be a win for them? 
I don't believe there will be a shutdown. Okay. I think that no one believes it would be a win for the party, but certain individuals think it would be a win for them oh, personally, yeah. like a Ted Cruz, for example, who uh, his campaign you know, philosophy is basically that we are compromising too much and we need to be more strict about our conservative ideology. And so that's the problem, right? It's not, there's right. not too much, it's not too much conservatism is, is not enough. And I'm going to be the one to do that. Um, now, is it, is it that I think that cooler heads are going to prevail and that there's some sort of, you know, rational thinking in Washington? No. But <laughs> enough, enough Republicans saw how bad it got after the last shutdown. It was terrible, terrible for them. They were blamed them. for it. They were blamed, and some would say rightly so, uh, for it. But anyway, the party got dinged for it. I think that they're they're looking to avoid that going forward. Again, among people who aren't up for re-election and who can afford to do this. And they've got a little cover in being able to say, it's not going to work. You know, we can try this, but the Democrats aren't going to let us have this vote. And so, you know, you can want a shutdown uh, if you like, but since it's not going to happen, let's just move on. Mm -hmm. And that's a good out for for those Republicans to say, I'd love to, but we just can't. So yeah. uh, and so for it's an easy out. And so for that reason, I think we will avoid the shutdown over that. Now, after that, we, of course, got the debt ceiling debate, which may be a whole nother thing. So I thought we had left those in the dust. It's it's not the case that we are uh, in the clear from further massive uh, incidents of gridlock in D.C. Yeah. But I think for the Planned Parenthood part, we got it. We're going to move on with that. Okay. Well, let's talk about Pope Francis in Washington. Um, what are your thoughts? I mean, he he flies in. He's greeted by the president. Not often happens for popes. I guess George W. Bush was the first one who did that. But uh, he's been getting the forgive the phrase the royal treatment, <laughs> at least officially. Mm -hmm. Do you think a lot of folks there are really just kind of like, okay, now would you ixnay on the you know the abortion and the the capitalism and, and uh, death penalty and all that kind of stuff. I think there are a lot of people who were happier when popes did not talk about poverty or talk about yeah. poverty in the context of an economic system that we have or an economic philosophy like supply-side economics that that we have. So, like, for example, he, he was talking about economic inequality the other day and his, his sort of, you know, his issue with it and the fact that he said, you know, trickle-down economics doesn't work. And I was like, wow, that is Jeb Bush's whole platform. Like, yeah. <laughs> this is, he's really, um, wow. So I think that some people are uncomfortable with him talking about climate change, and they really wish he would sort of stick to poping and less to <laughs> policy issues. But I, I do think it's a it's a blurry line, and I think there's, there's always a little crossover. But they know he's popular, yeah. and so everyone had to go. Right, you had to show up. There was like one congressman who didn't show up, but everybody had to go. And oh, wait. did did was this like a joint session where you had the Supreme Court and everybody else there? Were they all there? Uh, all of the the Senate and the House and the Supreme Court, I believe, was invited. Although not all of them showed up. Uh, notably, um, Scalia, Antonin Scalia, did not show up because he's an atheist and refuses to acknowledge. <laughs> On the contrary, he, we we all know very well he's a Catholic. If you read his decisions, he talks mm -hmm. a lot about that. Mm -hmm. um, nor did Justice Thomas, who was really? um, who is not necessarily. I don't know if he's Catholic or not, but he, he I believe is religious to some degree. So he was not there. Um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was there. So it was. I I don't know how political that was, but it was interesting to see who who was there and who wasn't. But so. So all these people who really wish he would not talk about these subjects had to show up. And then afterwards, they had to give uh, 
they had to thread a needle really carefully and say, well, I disagree with him from some from time to time on certain things, but he's the Pope and he's awesome because <laughs> I can't say mean things about the Pope because I will never recover from something like that. So it's interesting watching them try and sort of um, distinguish between the politics of economics and the and the issues of poverty that, that are right there in the Bible. So we, we obviously started off talking about the presidential race. Uh, do you think those issues he's talking about, whether or not they're citing the Pope or not, but, you know, poverty, immigration, he, he made an explicit call mm -hmm. to treat immigrants well and, and to be welcoming. Do you think those will resonate at all or be picked up by anybody uh, in a realistic way during the next national election? Here's how I envision this playing out. I'm a reporter. I'm interviewing you. You're Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Pope Francis says we are supposed to do X, Y, and Z with regard to immigration. Respond, and that you know, setting it up yeah. as a I, I'm not going to as a sort of a thing by which candidates should be measured and should be expected to know how to answer uh, is where I think you see this. And a candidate who messes that up, I think, could suffer greatly for it. But climate change and immigration and and economic inequality were already important issues, uh, regardless of how little or much they get brought up in Republican debates. Yeah. But they still are very important issues to voters. So I think those were going to come up anyway. But I think in terms of the Pope's direct influence, you'll see a lot of people in the media using his, um, you know, using his quotes to try and, you know, gauge how the candidates feel and see if anyone is actually willing to say something mean about the Pope. And God, God help whoever does. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you've been a longtime observer of politics on, on local, national, state levels. Um, what topics are not being talked about that you think should be on the agenda of either party or both parties? I mean, what, what are you like? Well, why aren't you talking about... Uh, well, you know, every there's a lot of people talking about a lot of stuff, so sure. it's hard to keep track of sort of everything everyone's talking about. But I will say the debates were disappointing insofar as they didn't mention uh, student loan debt, mm -hmm. for example, and that's related to economic inequality. But it's also kind of a separate technical thing that you know you can uh, you can do yeah. things about basically from a regulatory perspective. Um, campaign finance is another one. Yeah, I've not heard boo about that that no one really wants to talk about uh, even though it's playing such a big role here with these uh these ies that are sort of to some degree allowing zombie candidates to continue um but we're seeing their limitations now with the dropping dropping out of walker and perry who had huge you know multi-million dollars stashes of cash in this independent expenditure but that their own campaign dried up well, um, I forget the name of the writer, and I apologize. Someone in the Financial Times made this argument a couple months ago, which is that the, you know, Citizens United, that decision that allowed, you know, just massive amounts of bankrolling of candidates has come back to bite the Republicans in the posterior. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> because they, you're not just the multiplicity of candidates who have mm -hmm. their own billionaires in their back pocket, or really they're in the back pocket of them, mm -hmm. then Donald Trump himself... He doesn't have any, he's not beholden to even a billionaire. That's right. He's beholden to whatever he wants at the moment. So the party machinery has no power over him. That's true. And and it's a perfect storm because not only do you have uh, now just sort of unlimited amounts of money coming to each of these candidates and keeping them in the race and allowing people to run that the party may not want in the race, but now after 2012, remember the Republican Party made a bunch of reforms expressly to narrow the fields and get a candidate ahead quicker so that you don't have this bruising primary season. So they shortened 
the primary season. They gave states permission to move up their primaries. Um, the idea being, you you know, you have a candidate that everyone's kind of settled on by June, so you can start looking toward your Democratic opponent. Right. But that's not happening, right? So what we're seeing now is you've got this sort of mushed up, like abbreviated primary uh, that they've specifically put in place with fewer debates. And it's going to cause, it could cause total chaos at the convention because you have, again, lots of well-funded candidates who maybe have 20% of the of the delegate votes. And maybe I've got 30% and maybe somebody else has, you know, 50%. Like it's not going to be clear going into the convention, potentially, who the candidate is and all those things they were trying to avoid the bruising primary the multiple debates the the tarnishing of the party and the process of it all is happening so it's it's really uh i, I would not want to be reince Priebus right now well i agree with you on all of that i think something else is happening as a result of this and, and particularly of donald trump which is that the republican message is getting mixed up um, I made a case uh, at our week-to-week program in Silicon Valley last week where I was, this is going to sound really weird, I was comparing it to Tina Brown at The New Yorker. Do you remember <laughs> when she, you are maybe too young to remember when she took over The New Yorker? Uh-huh. Um, there was a lot of screaming and crying, oh my God, she's going to change it. Mm-hmm. And she did. She made changes and some great, some bad, whatever you think about that, she made changes. Mm-hmm. And then she moved on as she always does. The new editors came in, continued to make changes but okay fine so you add a contents page okay you know contributors page okay who cares because they knew okay this magazine can understand can can withstand it it's and it's still it's a great magazine Mm -hmm. here's my the comparison is donald trump's coming in and saying some stuff some stuff that is abhorrent but other stuff that is not republican ultra conservative orthodoxy you know i don't think he really cares about gay marriage he has talked about raising taxes on the wealthy he, you know, has uh, uh, he's he's done some uh, foreign wars. He's, you know, he's he's not as he doesn't want to go out and, and uh, make Iran a, a parking lot. Um, I don't think he's going to be their nominee. He will move on. I think other candidates will be able then, however, to depart from that orthodoxy more easily because they will realize it's not the kiss of death. Uh, with some, uh, you know, that there will be a base of voters that they can appeal to. There will be certain funders who will go for that, even though Donald Trump doesn't need to tap them. Uh, oh, so you think he's sort of smuggling in some some new ideas well, there, I think, some yeah, well, I don't possibilities? Mean, I don't mean to laud him as a, mm-hmm. as a, but I mean to say he's 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 a bull in a china shop in that sense. Mm-hmm. He's making change by the fact, he's showing people that you can make this change in what your message is, and that the Republican message is not going to be as unified as it has been in the future. Uh, that would be very interesting to see because I, I think that there are a lot of Republicans. I know that there are a lot of Republicans who um, who don't agree with every point of the party line. I think there are Democrats who don't agree with every point Absolutely. of the Democratic Party line. Absolutely. So for people who don't um, tick off all 10 things, and there's lots of them, they don't necessarily vote in primaries, but, you know, they're out there, uh, then that would be, you know, that's something I think that they're very much looking forward to. So they don't have to feel like they are making a choice between um, just a super right wing person, a super left wing person. They can that there's possibilities in the middle, and so far, you know, you know what we had John Huntsman last time around, oh, who yes. lasted about a minute. So uh, <laughs> you know, if he's if he's lasting this far, uh, then you know, it, into the cycle, then then it does. I think for some more moderate uh, folks or people who depart a little bit, uh, give them a little hope. Now whether that translates, I don't know, because Donald Trump is such a unique 
force and at a unique point in history, whether he can be replicated or whether from now on um, there's going to be more wiggle room. I'm I'm not at all certain. Well, we're all part of the Donald Trump show right now. Thank you, Melissa Griffin Kane, for joining us. Uh, before we wrap up, I'm just going to quickly do something. When we do a live week to week political roundtable. I always end with a news quiz. Um, we ask the audience members to compete to answer questions about the week's news. We're not going to do that. Don't worry. I'm not going to ask you, Melissa. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> but let's do a modified version of that with just one news quiz question. So besides Pope Francis, those of you playing at home, just try to come up with the answer. Besides Pope Francis, what world leader is President Obama meeting this week? Here are four choices. Is it British Prime Minister David Cameron? Syrian President Bashar al-Assad? Russian President Vladimir Putin or Chinese President Xi Jinping, if I pronounced his name correctly. So while you're thinking about that answer, I'll note that this leader represents a country about which practically every national political candidate talks tough while they're running for office, but pretty quickly learns to accommodate once they get into office. So do you think you know the answer? It's Chinese President Xi Jinping making a high-level summit with the president this week. So that's our show for today. Thank you once again to Deborah J. Saunders, Dr. Larry Gerson, and Melissa Kane. And thanks to all of you for listening to us here on the Michelle Miao Show every day here on the Progressive Voices Network. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this week-to-week presentation of a recent Commonwealth Club program. I'm John Zipperer, host of Week to Week, and I invite you to find us online at commonwealthclub.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to michellemeow.com. See you all next week. Tune into the Michelle Meow Show weekdays at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 Eastern on Progressive Voices.